Grab your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of John, chapter 14, and we will start reading in a moment uh, at verse 18 together. Uh, John, chapter 14, and verse 18. Today we continue in our series, The Apostles' Creed. We have been doing this for nine weeks. We find ourselves almost at the very end of it. That means the summer is coming to an end, fall is about to come upon us, and all those kinds of wonderful things are about to happen. If you're a parent, your kids are about to go back to school, and you're saying amen to that in some ways. I know you love them. And, but I, I want to talk as we continue this process about this morning, the portion says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, let me start out kind of different for a moment. We'll bring all this together. Then we're going to stand in a few, few minutes and recite the creed together. But um, in 1977, Charles Strauss wrote some very well-known lyrics to a song. And, and Charles Strauss wrote this in 77. And I want to read them to you. But before I read them, I want to apologize in advance for this, okay? And you'll understand why in just a moment. But I apologize in advance because here are the lyrics. It says this. The sun will come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there will be sun. Now, you know why I'm apologizing, right? Because this is going to be stuck in your brain for the next few days. Exactly. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow until there's none. When I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I'll just stick up my chin and grin and say, Oh, the sun will come out tomorrow. I figured you might break out in song, but I guess not, right? So you have to hang on until tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're only what? A day away. Yeah, you know, it's from the Broadway play Annie. You know, now it's going to stuck, now it's stuck in your brain. And, and when you hear these words, they're per, it's, there's purposely optimism built into all of these words and it's kind of strange given the character of who Annie is because Annie is this orphaned little girl. And so what we find is this optimism built into these words. It transcends her circumstances. She is a hopeless romantic in, in light of the fact that she's abandoned, stuck in this terrible orphanage. And so the writer infuses this character with optimism. And so your huge question to me right now is, Mark, why would you start out a teaching on the Holy Spirit with something like that? You know, because it seems to really make no sense whatsoever. Well, I'm glad you asked that because you always ask the right questions. Because the, the idea was uh, to develop a character when Annie was written, to develop this character where optimism transcends her circumstances. It is that hopeless, this hopeless romantic, despite what's going on in her life, and, and so what we understand about this is this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. This is. It is. Now, to give you some useless information that what you have heard and or as we have read these lyrics together, they kind of stick in your brain for a while. And what I realized in research, it's called an earworm. I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but it's called an earworm. It's when you hear something that is kind of strange or, or, or sticks to you and you start humming it later on and you don't know why. How do you, get, how do you get rid of an earworm that you find another song It's just as awful as the one that's stuck in your head? It replaces that and you just live through it is exactly what it is. Yes. Yeah, you just kind of live through it. So thank you, Mark, for putting that in our brain. And so back to the question, why do we use this song in teaching the Holy Spirit? Because when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we tend to have a lot of wrong ideas about how He works and what He does within our lives. We do. 
We think of the Holy Spirit as the weird uncle who shows up at the family reunion and always makes things kind of awkward. It's kind of the way that we look at him. We don't want to talk about it a lot. We like to say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but talk about the Holy Spirit is something we kind of sort of avoid at times within in church. We equate him to just emotionalism. We equate him to just that of spontaneity. We remove, I think, him sometimes from the beautiful text that we find in Scripture, and thus it robs us of the great wealth and treasure that we find in what he does and how he works within my life and your life. We make him very singular a lot of times. We make the Holy Spirit very singular. And we say, oh, he's the one that brings those gifts that we find in the book of 1 Corinthians, who we really, don't, we really don't understand all those things at times, but yet we know that the Bible says that those are things that we should want and we should ask and we should pray for, which is absolutely true. So we make him singular in that he just brings gifts. So he brings gifts like tongues, and he brings gifts like knowledge and the prophetic and healing and all those kinds of other things that he brings all those things. And so what we do, we reduce him to just the bringer and the giver of those gifts And it robs us of the essence and the power of who the Holy Spirit is. You say, Mark, that still doesn't necessarily answer my question of why you want to talk about Annie and you stuck that crazy song tomorrow in my brain. It still doesn't. Well, I wrote out something for you, a little lengthy. It's on the screen. We're going to read it together. Maybe this will help to understand exactly what we're talking about. And it's this. It's in your bulletin. The Holy Spirit's role in our life ransoms us from the type of spiritual orphans we are and brings us into a home where there is deep abiding hopefulness that transcends all of our circumstances. And that may not be a totally exhaustive statement of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but yet I think it is a very encompassing statement of the Holy Spirit and how He works within our lives that He is not this singular entity of of the Godhead who only does one thing and He just brings gifts and a few other things that He does within our life or just convicts us or just opens our heart for salvation. But yet He does all of those things and absolutely more. He brings peace and guidance within our lives. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit we initially lean toward the writings of Paul many times. We start in the book of Acts where Luke has written the book of Acts, and then we always work our way into Paul, the book, of, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the gifts and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But today, can we do something a little different? Can we do something a little different? That today I want a different, or I would like a different perspective on the Holy Spirit and what he does in our life. And in order to do that, I want to go, I want us to go to the book of to the book of John, chapter 14, for a few minutes together. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to hear one member of the Trinity talk about another member of the Trinity. And we're going to get the perspective of Jesus, who is the center of the Holy Spirit, and what he does within our life. But before that, we're going to stand in just a moment and read and recite together as we've been doing. A couple of things about creeds. One is this. Creeds hold no authority within themselves. We say that almost every week to you, that they point us to ultimate authority. And so reality is the creed that is before you today, it reflects the word of God. It reflects scripture this morning. Second is this, we do not believe in incantations. And what that means is this, that no matter how you recite this by memory and how many times you say it, it's not going to make you lucky or make you have more favor with God. That's not what this is about. It is a tool. It is a tool to simply form you spiritually is what this is about. 
And so also what we realize is this, when we stand and say this in a few moments, we enter a great community of believers who well over a thousand years have been reciting the creed in gatherings just like you and I find ourselves today. And secondly, we renounce in saying this a lot of, po- a lot of popular narratives of the day. So what we're saying is that we're being discipled by something, that something is influencing us and whatever disciples us is the lens that you and I see life through. And so what we say, this is what we believe. That's why it starts with I believe, not I know, because we realize that I know is information. I believe is a catalyst toward change in our life. So this is what we believe. So if you're comfortable, safe space. If you're not comfortable, I absolutely understand. But if you are comfortable by standing with us for just a moment right now, if you don't mind standing, you can take your bulletin, you can read it on the screen or on the banner behind me, and we will recite together. It's such an amazing thing to do this because, again, we join in this great community of believers all over the world this morning that are doing this. And also for, for uh, well over a thousand years, believers have recited this together. Let us read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence we shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. In light of the fact that the creed points us to the Word of God, we read this morning in the book of John, chapter 14, in verse 18. These are the words of Christ. I will not leave you as orphans. Ah, that is the why, you know, kind of why we started out with Annie. Yes, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. A little background for a moment as we continue through this text, and that is that we find Jesus close to the cross at this point, and he's telling the disciples, hey, listen, I'm going to die, going to be buried, going to be raised, and I'm going to ascend back to the Father. And, and so I'm no longer going to be here in a physical form, he said, but I'm still here with you. And it's confusing because in just a moment we know that Judas, not Iscariot, but the other Judas, asked Jesus a question for clarity. And so he, what he's saying is, I'm not here any longer in physical form, but yet I'm still here. And it is confusing because I'm, you're not going to see me, but you will. I'll be here. I'm, I'm not here physically, but I will be here. And they really don't understand what he's saying. So continue reading in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or show myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot. And that's kind of interesting because he's making sure that he's not simply, you know, grouped with Judas Iscariot, but he says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? They're confused because what he's thinking, this is some covert operation. We're going to see you. Nobody else is going to see you. How is this all going to work? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, he says, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when, when it does take place, you may believe, he says. Those are powerful words. There's a lot of discussion in there. There's a whole sermon series in those texts alone, and it's so very powerful. Let me cite another story with you. Charles Dickens, some year, many years ago, wrote the story Oliver Twist, and it's another, about another orphan. He's orphaned from birth, an illegitimate birth, and so there is no father to be found. He's placed in a very cruel orphanage. He's malnourished. Because he asked for food in one of the scenes, if you remember in the movie or the play or whatever you have seen, that yet he goes to ask for food and he's punished for asking for food by being beaten and he's placed in what is called an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship in that time was simply a a way to hide that of cruel, hard labor for orphan children. In fact, in researching this, what I realized that Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist as a social commentary against the use of orphan children in child labor. And so Oliver Twist, in this, he is abused. He's beaten by his taskmaster. And in this pivotal scene in the, in the, in the play and in the movie, if you've seen it, that what we find is he's crying in his bed and he says, simply says, I'm going to fix my own life. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And he escapes from the orphanage and he finds himself in London and he finds himself connected to this crew of boys. And he's connected to this man by the name of Fagin, who we later discover is like a mobster. And he uses runaway orphan children to simply do crimes in the city of London. And the more Oliver tries to fix his life, the messier and the broken, more broken it becomes. And what we find in this social commentary is it's somewhat of a mirror of our own lives. It really is. It's, it's a mirror of our own lives that the more we try to get rid of the angst within our lives, the more we try to, to satisfy the angst within our lives, the, the worse our life becomes. The more we try to dig ourselves out of this hole, the deeper the hole becomes, the messier our lives tend to get. And here is my thought. We're all born with some kind of angst within our lives. We are. Yes, a desire to belong, a desire for more, a desire for something else within, a, within our life, a desire to belong that goes beyond naturally what, through the grace of God what God has placed us in. And, and let me kind of build this out for you. Growing up, we find this very young happening in our lives. Yeah, that at some point you look at your parents. Now, parents, hang on, because this is, you know, we know this is truth. You look at your parents at some point and you think your parents are part of the problem in your life. You say that. Yes, you do. Why? Because they're trying to run my life. My parents are trying to learn. What do they know? You know, here I am that I am 13 or 14 years old. What do they know about running my life? They really don't know me. And we see our parents in our teenage years as part of the problem of our lives. We belong to this family unit who loves us, cares for us, clothes us, feeds us, and all those kinds of things. But yet, it's not the belonging that we want. So what do we do in those early years? We simply launch out to find belonging in the peer groups that surround us. 
And, and so we, we say, oh, no, this is the group I want to be a part of, and that's the group, and, and so this is where I'm going to belong, yet none of those things satisfy us through our teenage years. And then what do we do after that? Oh, well, we end up getting married. Yes, we do. That's going to satisfy us. Can I tell I tell this to all of my couples who I do premarital counseling with, and it says, marriage fixes nothing. It doesn't. If you're lonely, get a dog, okay? Understand that, right? Marriage fixes nothing. Yes, it does. not now it's a wonderful thing. I love it. I absolutely love it. Reba's here. I love it. But if something is broken in your life, it fixes nothing. So what happens is we have this angst in our life, and so we got to fix it. So what? I'm going to get married. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to fix your spouse. And that doesn't work because some of you tried it. And, that isn't, and because it gets messier, the more you try to fix things, the messier it gets. So then what do you do then? So, hey, I'm going to fix this relationship, and we're going to have a baby. Yes, and that'll fix everything. Listen, point number two, children fix nothing. They just complicate everything, okay? Now, I love kids. Don't, don't get me wrong. I have three of them. My granddaughter, Emma, is sitting... Hey, Emma. And she's waving at me. She's taking notes, too. So, and she's six. And so, she, you know, I, I, love my, I love my children, absolutely, but they don't fix anything. So we have children. That's going to fix it. And what do we do? We spend the most rest of our life trying to helicopter parent them. We really do. Yes. How? And, and then what, what happens then? Oh, we show up at church and church says, no, you're doing it wrong. You got to do it this way. And so now we fix the rest of our life trying to do it the way that we're told at church to do it. And what happens is we come to this acute understanding that our best is just not good enough. I don't know if you've reached that point in your life yet or not. Yes, our best is just not good enough. Oh, and what we, happens is we feel stuck at that point. We feel like we're, we're an orphan. We feel like Oliver is some sort of, sort of spiritual orphan in our life. That The more we try to fix things, the messier and the messier and the more broken they become. Can I, I want to tell you something about your best is not good enough. Can I, and I want to say this as gingerly and, or as gently and, and as kind and as merciful as I can say it to you this morning. And here is what I want to say. Your best is not good enough. Thank you, Mark. I came for the positive reinforcement of the sermon today, and you have just told me that my best is not good enough. That's really something that I'm going to, uh, that's fuel for me for the rest of the week in my life. And, And it's not, it's not. I don't know where we got that idea, I'm not sure. You say, well, I just went back, you know, on Netflix and I watched Rocky Three, And that's how I know that, you know, that my best is good enough. That's exactly how I know. No, no, we're not God. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're, we're, we're none of those kinds of things. We're not omnipotent. Absolutely. I don't know where we got this idea. And the idea that my best is not good enough in that there is a sweet spot in understanding that. Because so much of the stress in my life. And so much of the overwhelming weight that I carry in this world falls on that belief that my best is good enough. So if I just do better and if I just work harder and if I can just fix everybody around me, then my life is actually going to be better. And that is not true. That's not true. It's not. 
my best is not good enough because we've been there and we've tried that and it's made a very huge mess of our lives at times. So there's a couple of thoughts about that of the Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives. The first is this, being adopted into the family of God becomes an identity marker that nothing and no one can take from us. It does. Look back at verse 18 for a moment. I will not leave you as orphans. I love this. Jesus says, I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you as believers, as followers of me, will see me because I live. You also live. Our best is not good enough. And that is an absolute fact. And that is simply solved here by the adopting work of the Holy Spirit in our life via that of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have been rescued and we have been ransomed, pulled out of the cosmic orphanage of this world when we have been brought into the family of God. We have. Look at verse verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you and I and you in me and I in you, he says. And here's what he's describing. That I will not leave you I will not leave you as orphans. Yes, I am leaving, but I'm not leaving you as orphans, but I will come to you. He talks about that of how the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and opens our eyes to that belief that he has not left us as orphans. And what I realize when I go back and look at all the things that we talked about through the creed over the last nine weeks together, that the Father sees us in love, but something has to be done about the sin of our life. What does he do? In love, the Father sends the Son to die on the cross, to be buried, to, 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 ra- to be raised on the third day, and to ascend back to the Father He loves us, and so he does it. And when he goes, he says, I'm not going to leave you an orphan, but what does he do? He says, hang on, I'm going to send you another. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help you to understand that you are no longer orphans, but you are members of the family of God. And being members of the family of God, there's an overflow from the Trinity of that of love and joy and peace and grace within my life this morning. And that's an identity marker within my life that nothing and no one in this world can ever take away from me. No one. That I'm a member of the family because the Father saw me in my sin, loved me so much that He sent the Son. The Son dies. He goes into a grave. He he raises on the third day. He ascends to the Father. He says, wait a minute, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will send you another, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, and I will send him to you. And he will illuminate this truth to you so you understand that you are not an orphan, is what he says. And I think that system is so powerful when we really understand that. And I thought, well, how do I, how do I build this out for everybody? Well, here's my thinking. And I know my thinking is kind of strange. But hold on for a moment. That Here's my thinking. That Well, I'm Reba's husband. You know that, right? And, and we just kind of put that out there. Reba's husband, in a few days for 39 years, okay? Isn't that amazing? Yes, that she has kept me around for 39 years. Our anniversary comes up this August the... Is it the 17th or the 18th? I, we, don't either, we don't know. We don't know. After 39 years, we don't know. We know it's one of those two dates. We can't remember, Okay. And, and so we have to go find our marriage license to always remember every year. And sometimes we celebrate on the 17th, sometimes we celebrate on the 18th. What's really important is what? We celebrate, right? Yes. 39 years. I'm hoping for 60. I really am. I'm hoping for 60. 
and, and I love her. I actually, I like her, and I think she likes me and loves me. It's apparent because when I come home in the afternoons, she's there. So I think that says something, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. But what I've learned is this, in this world, is that I can't control her, nor can I control all the circumstances in this broken world around her. I can't. And there may come a day, now I'll qualify this in a moment, there may come a day that I may not be her husband. Yes. You say, Mark, what does that mean? You know? Like, and, and, and I want to say that that means like the transition from here to there. Understand that, okay? So, so don't get all crazy on me. But, but the, and, and there may be a day that, that I'm no longer her husband. Because there are some things, and God forbid, but there are some things in this world that I have no control over. And for all of you that think that you have control over everything, you're wrong. You are wrong. I have three sons who I love tremendously, and I would give my life for them in a moment without any hesitation whatsoever. But I realize that this is a broken world that I live in, and I can't control everything around them, and I can't protect them completely like I would love to protect them. And so that can change also. It can. I realize that I'm the lead pastor of Hope Fellowship. You know, I've been here since the beginning, almost 12 years this coming February. I've been here the whole time. Reba and I have been here. But what I realize is this is a broken world and there's a lot of things I can't control. And that can change also and that can go away. And what I'm saying to you is this. Every identity marker in this world can simply go away. It can, it can change. It's all fluid. Except one identity marker as you as a believer. And that is that you are not orphaned, but you are a member of God's family. And nothing can take that away. Nothing can touch that. That you are a son and daughter of God. That you are loved and cared for and provided and you are ransomed and you are redeemed by God. That you are a member of His family and that is your primary identity marker within your life. It's not what you do. It's not where you work. It's not your education. It's not the name that you currently have. No, the identity marker as a believer that you have that you are not orphaned but you are a member of the family of God. I think that's important that you need to understand that you're not an orphan. That you're not. But because of the broken world that we live in, there are times when we feel like we are. And when we try to control everything and our best is not good enough, that we find ourselves feeling that way because we can't fix everything, that we are a member of God's family. Yes. So here's what we're going to do. Matthew has already said, you know, he's already stole my thing that turn to someone around you and say good morning. Thank you, Matthew. I love you, buddy. I really do. No, I do. I, I love you a lot. Yes. But you've already introduced yourself to someone and spoken to them. Could you do this? Find someone around you. Find someone. You may have to look for someone right now, okay? Um, but it's still August. But find someone around you and say to them, you are not an orphan. You are a member of God's family. Could you say that to someone around you right now? Could you say that to them? Because some of you need to hear that today. So in light of that, here's our second thought this morning. Here's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. After being adopted into the family of God, we begin to take on family traits. 
we begin to take on family traits. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, um, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest or show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. I underline that part that says, we will come to him and make our home with him. That is an amazingly powerful statement that we're going to talk about in a moment. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And what it says to us is this, that yet we're orphaned, then pulled into the family of faith, then we begin to look like that family and take on traits of that family that we've been invited into. So what this talks about is my biblical obedience is driven by, by love. My biblical obedience to God, because it talks so much about doing His commands and having His commands, that my biblical obedience is driven by love. That we're not obedient in order to be loved, but here's the thing, but we are loved, and that love is the catalyst for the obedience within our lives. And that is absolutely important that you understand that this morning. That the primary driver of a Christian life and your Christian life is not that of discipline or self-death or dying to yourself is what that is. That's not the primary driver of your life. No, it's love and delight is the primary driver of our life as believers. I'm not saying that love does not mean that you don't have discipline in your life. That's not it at all, or self-sacrifice. No, but I would argue this, that the higher you love something, the more you love something, the greater catalyst in your life to simply be disciplined in those areas of your life. It is, and to simply accomplish those things. The more you love something, the more you are disciplined toward that thing within your life. It is. Now, some of you have wondered if, like, somebody just kind of left this up here, maybe, and you wondered, what is this going, what is this? And, and this, is, this is a sweeper. I was going to bring a vacuum, but I thought this is a little better. Here is my thought and the way to kind of build this out to you this morning about that of love being the catalyst of our obedience and how the Holy Spirit works in our life in this area is this. You ask your child to vacuum the house. Now, I don't know if you give your child chores or not, but you ask your child to vacuum the house And they say, okay, I'll do that. You hear the vacuum run for about 45 seconds and it goes off. And so you, 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 you know, you kind of yell out to your kid, hey, hey, did you vacuum? Yeah, I vacuumed the whole house. You know, within your brain that not even Superman can vacuum the house in 45 seconds, right? Yeah. Maybe Batman, but we definitely know not Superman. Okay. So it just is not going to happen. So as a loving father, as I would be, what would you do? Well, you call your child to the room and you say, let's walk around the house and see how well of a job that you have done, right? And so you walk around the house and you begin to point out things in the house. And you come to a corner of the house and there are, well, what it appears to be, somebody has taken a bag of goldfish, they have crumbled them up, they have put, I know some of you, it's like the type A individuals are going nuts about now, right? And they've danced on those goldfish. And you look at your child and you say to them, how in the world did you miss that? And what they will say to you is this, I didn't see that, right? That's what they always say. I didn't see that. Because why? They're vacuuming with their eyes closed. This is exactly right. Yes, yes. I didn't see that. 
And so what you do is you remind them that you vacuum everywhere and you clean out every corner and, and you make sure that the house, house is clean. That's exactly what you do. Yes. What I love, and I'm going to clean this up in a minute, so don't panic, okay? Just hang with me for just a second, okay? What I love about the text that we just read, this part where it says we will make our house with him, What that is not illustrating, that is not illustrating that our whole house is completely clean. No. But that our love and desire to be clean has invited the Holy Spirit to walk through the house with us in our lives. Not that it's clean, but our desire, our love and desire for it to be clean has invited the Holy Spirit to walk through the, our life as a house. And he lovingly walks and he brings it to this place and he says, hey, what's that? Well, it looks like where the goldfish fairy threw up is exactly what it looks like, right? Yes, yes. And what is your response to him? Well, I didn't see that. And what is his response to you? Well, you need to open your eyes the next time you try to clean up your house and get your life in order and get your life straight. That is, a, not, that is not what he says to you at all. Because the important thing is that... It's, the important thing is not whether you saw it or not. The important thing is this. That he's going to help you clean it up. You see, that's the work of the Holy Spirit with our lives. And so he says, let's clean this together. And so he begins to help you. This thing does work. I was curious if it would work or not. Yes. I think every parent should get their child one of these, okay? So that they have to really work at this process. And so he says, let's clean your life up together. And so what the Holy Spirit does in our life is this. He takes us to the corners of our heart. He takes us to the corners of our mind. He takes us to the corners of our life. And he says, what's that? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen that before. I don't know. Well, a lot of times we have seen it, yeah? But we don't want to deal with it. And the Holy Spirit never says to us, I can't believe that. Look, it, it, look at the goldfish on the floor, and you never saw that? I mean, all you have to do is have a little initiative. All you have to do is kind of, well, your best is probably good enough to clean that up anyway. That's not what he says at all. What he says to you and I, as he works in our heart and our lives, is let me help you clean that up in your life. Because our best is never, never good enough. So what are you struggling with? Oh, Mark, I wish you hadn't asked that. Because that's not one of these days I want to talk about that. The Holy Spirit comes to you and says, what are you struggling with? And you say, oh, I'm great, man. I'm great. I, I'm struggling with nothing right now in my life. Absolutely nothing. Everything is wonderful. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? He takes you over to the corner. And he says, what's that? Oh, that's nothing. I have no idea what that is, you know. And, and I, you know, somebody else left that. I didn't make that mess. I have no idea. And, and he knows that we're going to not own things at times in our life. Absolutely. And he says, hey, here's the point. Here's the point. Let's clean this up together. 
So I ask you a question this morning. I'm not finished yet, so don't get all excited, okay? But uh, I'll ask you a question. What's in the corner of your life? What's in your corner? What's there? What addiction? What sin? What, 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 what morsel of unforgiveness? What anger? What bitterness? What, what struggle? What guilt? What, what is there in the corner of your life? Because can I tell you that when I read this scripture, that that love and delight that I have, that, that I want my house to be clean, but I realize that my best is not good enough within my life, that the Holy Spirit steps in and He says, hey, here's what's going to happen. We'll make our house with Him, that I want to move in with you, and, and I want to help you clean up the corner of your life. So what's in the corner of your life? Have you thought about that? What's in the corner of your life? What are you struggling with? And the last thought of this, we wrap all this up together this morning. The Holy Spirit informs and stirs up adoration that drives our obedience. Let me read the rest of this text as we've already read once. Verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The first thing I want to say is the Holy Spirit teaches us about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's always about Jesus, always making much of Jesus. Understand that. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, it will always line up with the Word of God. And so when you come and say, oh, this is what the Holy Spirit said, but it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's not what the Holy Spirit said to you because the, the Word of God is always that test, that instrument that you use to test that voice within your life. He always speaks to us, and it always lines up with the Holy Spirit. He's crazy about Jesus. He's always making much of Jesus. And that adoration is the fuel for the obedience of our life. He's the one that reminds us, the Scripture says, about all the faithfulness of God in our life because we forget that sometimes. And when we forget about the faithfulness of God, that spirit of complaining comes over us about, uh, despite all the evidence, God has not done this, and God should have been here, and all those things in our life. But He teaches us about Jesus. And when he teaches us about Jesus, that love for God grows in our life. And that love for God becomes the fuel for the obedience of our life. And if you've ever wondered why you just can't do this, and I can't, I continually do this thing, and I'm continually falling in this pit, maybe you have to go back and you have to let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart today about who Jesus is. And the rest of the text says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I read this over and over this week. About this peace that the Holy Spirit brings in our lives. And it's so different, isn't it, from the peace that we find in the world. It is. I know this is like cruise season for some of you. Maybe you've gone on a cruise this summer. Or you go on a cruise in the fall to some places really warm when it gets cold here. And you get on the cruise and they come over the, the intercom and they say, you know, welcome aboard. We're so glad you're here. No one needs to panic because this vessel is unsinkable. You know, this vessel is unsinkable. Yes, it is. So don't worry about the cruise. Don't worry about the adventure. And somebody says, hey, I have a question. We've counted the lifeboats, and there are not enough lifeboats for everybody that's on here. And they say to you, hey, don't worry about it because the ship is unsinkable. No need to worry. Yes. It's like me coming in this morning and saying, welcome to Hope Fellowship. We're glad you're here. We want you to understand that this building is earth 
earthquake-proof, and it is totally fireproof, so you have no worries here. No worries. How we think in our culture, if I just move my kids to this area of town, then things are better. The schools are a little better there, and so my, maybe they'll be more protected. And then my kids are going to grow up to be exactly what I want them to be in life. Yes. And so what I realize is this. The peace that the world says, the peace of the world offers us, what happens is the peace of the world says that you're God, and you're good You're good enough at your very best to make all these things happen. If I just work harder, if I do more, if I'm more diligent in these areas, then I can fix all these things. And all that pressure of fixing all those things falls upon our shoulders. And no wonder we become... We become neurotic and anxious and we can become fearful people in our lives. And then in the middle of all of that, Jesus steps in and says, wait, that's not my peace. Because in the middle of our understanding that our best is never good enough, Jesus steps into the middle of all of that and he says, yes, that is a true statement, but I am good enough, he says. I am good enough. That's what he says. That it's true that your best is not good enough, but I am good enough, and that is all you need. And in the middle of all the pressure, in the middle of all of those things that you're trying to fix, in the middle of everybody that seems to be broken around you, and you want to make everything better around you, he says that's never going to work, but you have to rest in my peace because your best is never going to be good enough. So when the enemy comes into your ear, you know, when the devil whispers it in your ear, hey, you don't measure up, you know what you should say to him? You know what, devil? You're right. That is absolutely true that I don't measure up, but I take great confidence in that and I find great peace in that because I know that I'm a member of the family of God and God does measure up all the time, every time. And because of that, my peace is not based on this world. My peace is not based upon the things I can do. But my peace is based in Christ. And the Holy Spirit brings that into our lives. That I'm not an orphan. That I'm a member of His family. I'm a son or daughter of God invited to His family. That He has made His home with me. He's shaping me to be His child. And my love drives the obedience in my life. And and what I realize that in that I'm granted peace that passes all human understanding. And man, in this world we need peace. We need peace. So for a moment, would you bow your heads in a moment of reflection? Father, this subject of the Holy Spirit, Lord, in our world and in in the church world has become somewhat very convoluted and misunderstood. And Lord, today, may we come to an understanding 
May we come to an understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, His purpose, His plan. May we come to a realization that our best is never going to be good enough. And in that, we find this rest, this sweet spot that you are. And in light of that, that is where we find peace in our lives. Lord, may we realize that you have made your home with us. We have made our home with you. And so that doesn't mean that our house is always clean. But yet that you have sent the Holy Spirit to us that walks us through our house. And you take us to the corners in love and kindness. And you clean up with us. Father, in a world where there is a continual striving for peace, where there is a new formula almost weekly to bring peace, what we realize is that there's no peace apart from you, Jesus. None. Because the world's peace is carried on our shoulders, your peace was carried on the cross. And so today we find peace in you that passes all human understanding. So Lord, speak to us. May we, may we meditate on the truths that we have heard from your word this morning. May we let the Holy Spirit for a moment in our lives Take us to the corner of our hearts to answer the questions, where are we being led by the Holy Spirit in our lives? Where is there delayed obedience in that leading in our lives? And may we allow you to lead us this morning. So direct us, Father. Direct us, Father.